Hi there, this is Ryan Polly, and welcome to the Coffee House Questions podcast. A um, couple things that I want to let you know of. Today is Friday, uh, September 16th. On tomorrow, September 17th, is the Engage Conference uh, here in Southern California. Um, I will be there at the Summit Ministries booth. And so I just want to encourage you, go to faithandpublicpolicy.org. Check out that conference. Uh, there's going to be some great speakers. Dennis Prager is the keynote speaker. He's the co-founder of Prager University. Um, there's also going to be John Stone Street, the uh, president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and it's going to be an awesome conference. And then I also just want to let you know, this is the last week uh, before the Student Rethink uh, the Student Rethink Apologetics Conference, uh, hosted by Stand to Reason. That is here in, in California on September 23rd and 24th. Um, and so I just want to let you guys know about that. Check out RethinkApologetics.com for more information on that conference. Um, and then I also want to let you know, uh, a couple weeks ago, um, about last week, I was um, invited to speak uh, for a youth group. And um, the youth pastor, uh, who's a good friend of mine, had me speak on um, the topic of spotting bad arguments. And I had just had a great time with his youth group. Um, talking about just different uh, arguments that people use um, against Christianity and uh, ways that Christians can be a little bit more thoughtful. And I gave three very simple things to these students that they can uh, remember and kind of have in the back of their mind um, to help them spot bad arguments when they're having conversations uh, with people about their faith. And so uh, check that out. That's now a new um, topic that uh, I will be speaking on. And so if you're interested to have me come speak to your group of students, um, that is one topic that you can check out. And you can look at all my topics um, at coffeehousequestions.com. So this last week, I wrote a blog uh, titled, What are the Strengths of Teaching Evolution to Students? And right now, I'm currently taking a class um, from the Reasons Institute on Evolution. And one thing I had to talk about was, how do we teach evolution to students? Should we do it? And, and why should we do it? And I think that teaching evolution to students can only help them. Um, I think it can only be a benefit because... When we know a different position, something that's different than our position, when we know it well, we can sound intelligent when we talk about it, and we can respond with confidence. And so when someone brings up an objection that we're not used to hearing, um, it won't be something we're not used to hearing. We'll be able to respond well, and we're not going to be caught off guard. And I think that when we're caught off guard, that's when we kind of panic. That's when uh, we can get defensive. And so um, I think that we should not be scared of it um, because I think when we keep students in the dark, when we don't expose it, them to evolution and instead um, just tell them, oh, you just need to believe in Christianity, just believe in creation, and we don't give them the other opinion or the other side, when they hear someone making a case for evolution, it can sound very convincing. And so um, I just want to present it well and help them think about all these different points um, so they don't hear it for the first time when they're off at college and they don't have someone to help them think about it. And so um, that's kind of why I wrote this blog. I think that it is only a strength. Um, it can only help our students 
um, by presenting them and teaching them the points of evolution and then showing them and helping them refute it. And this is kind of what we talked about a few weeks back when I talked about inoculation rather than isolation. We don't isolate them from these issues, but instead we inoculate them. We give them the points, but then we show them um, how to refute the points and we show them how to think clearly on these issues. And so one thing I just want to bring up is, is the response that I've gotten from a few people now since writing this blog on Monday is they keep giving me example after example after example of examples of evolution, of evidence for evolution. And a lot of times it can sound convincing because they use big words. They, they, they sound like they know what they're talking about. Talking about different characteristics between land animals and dolphins was one that I got this week. Or, di- or talking about the homology or the similar bone structures between you know a bat's wing and a, and a horse leg and a human hand and that sort of thing. And th- they can give example after example. And that one of the biggest ones that always comes up is the similarities in DNA. That we trace back DNA that we can see these very similar characteristics between uh, different species. And the best explanation for that is that there is a common ancestor. And so they use these, these similarities in DNA and homology and all this stuff to show that common ancestry is true and that Darwinian evolution presents the best picture with the tree of life. Now, there's one important question I think that we need to ask whenever we're presented with this kind of information. And, and this is the question. Is it possible that these similarities could be a result of a common creator rather than a common ancestor. Or another way I've asked it is, what would we expect to see if there was a common creator? Right? Because I think that when we look at things that we know are created, like phones, we can look at similarities between the iPhone, uh, the Samsung, Windows phone, and we can see these different similarities. And why are they so similar? Yes, they have different creators, but why are they so similar? Well, because they work. But you can even look at similarities between the iPhone 3, the 4, the 4S, the 5, 5S, 6, 6S, and now coming out with a 7. And there are slight changes between each one, but there are a lot of similarities between the different um, phones. And why are there similarities? Because there's a common creator that created something that worked. There's a similarities between the iPhone and the iPad. There are changes But why create something extremely different when what you've already made works well? You can also look at similarities between like a spoon and a pot. And this is a common example. You kind of see this evolution of the spoon changing into a big pot. Well, no, it it didn't evolve, but there's a similar creator and each one has a function and each one is a little bit different. And so I think that is an important question to ask is what would we expect to see if we have a common creator rather than a common ancestor. And I think that we should expect to see the homology and bone structures. We should expect to see similarities in DNA. We should expect to see these different characteristics between land animals and, and mammals that are in the sea. And so I don't think that these pieces of evidence point solely to evolution. I think that these pieces of evidence can be make a case for both evolution as well as creation. And so I think on those alone, uh, you can't make a case solely for evolution. 
Now, one other thing that came up uh, a few times was this idea of, hey, if there is a creator, then this wouldn't be present in this species. Or if there was a creator, then we shouldn't see this. Now, what's fascinating is normally when I bring up an argument for the beginning of the universe or the beginning of life or the origin of life or the origin of consciousness, the skeptic normally responds and says, hey, um, we haven't figured out everything yet. Science hasn't figured out everything, but give science more time and we'll have an answer. Now, what's fascinating is I was talking with someone. They said, you know, there's this certain characteristic inside of a dolphin. And if there is a common creator, it has no function. And if there's a creator, the creator would not have put it there. So I kind of said, hey, give science more time. We'll figure out what its function is. So it's fascinating when, when evolution is, is, is the thing being discussed. Um, we don't need to give science more time. This has no function. Let's throw it out. But if it points to creator, oh, no, give science more time. We'll find that answer. But it's interesting, in order to know if something has a function, we have to know the intentions of the designer. And I took a class from Jay Warner Wallace, and he gave a wonderful uh, analogy where he showed us this picture of this thing that looked like a cheese grater, but it didn't do very well at grating cheese. There, there wasn't any sharp edges to grate the cheese. And so if this thing was designed as a cheese grater, it would be useless. And so you could say, oh, what a horrible design. This thing is worthless. However, when you know the intentions of the design, when you know what it has been designed for, then it makes a whole lot more sense. And he showed us that it was designed in order to, to make noodles and, and in a certain way of making soup. And for that, its purpose, it, it makes perfect sense. It's designed perfectly. And so you have to know the intentions of the designer. And so if our universe, if creation, if living things have been designed by a creator, we have to know the purpose of that creator, his purpose, in order to know if these things have purpose or not, or what its intentions are or not. We can look at a computer and say, oh, that was designed poorly because it's too big. But if it was too small, then it couldn't do other functions. Dr. Frank Turek talks about this when he says, yeah, if I want a computer that can run NASA, then I'm not going to be able to carry it with me. But if I want a computer that I can carry with me and do presentations, then it's not going to run NASA. And so we have to look at what are the intentions of the creator? What is this designed for? And then we can see the purpose from there. And so I think that when we're looking at evolution, we need to make sense that, hey, we, we have to understand the intentions of the creator, but also a lot of the examples given in favor as evidence for evolution can also be explained by common creator. And so what we see is that the, the person who believes in evolution sometimes has to come at the evidence already believing God does not exist. And then it makes the most sense from the evolutionary perspective. But when you have the option uh, that God does exist, then they both explain the evidence and we have to go to something further. And that's why I think this evidence also can point to a common creator. All right. Thank you very much. It looks like uh, we have a question from Andrew. Andrew, thank you so much for watching. Let me pull up your question here. Let me see if I can see it on my computer. Do you have a recommended... So Andrew asks, uh, do you have a recommended a recommendation of a resource that presents all the different views, old earth, young earth, intelligent design, evolution, with arguments for and against each position? Um, I do have one resource 
and I'm trying to think of the name of it right now. It's sitting out in my living room. It's called The Genesis Debate. I forgot who wrote it. Let me see if I can look it up quickly. Uh, it's called The Genesis Debate. Now, that one doesn't present evolution, but it does present three views of creation. And so it gives you um, the young earth, old earth, and then also the framework view. Um, and so the 24-hour view is presented by uh, Duncan and Hall. You have the day-age view presented by Hugh Ross uh, and Archer, and then also the framework view. And so it does give you three different views um, of creation. And what I like about that book is that each um, section is written by the people who hold to that view. And then the other two people who are presenting the other views critique that paper and then the person that originally wrote the first essay goes back and responds to the two critiques. And so you get that with each of the three views. So you get first the presentation of the view, the two critiques, and then the response to the critique. And I found that very helpful uh, for what um, looking at the difference between old earth, young earth, and the framework view. Um, I haven't found a, a resource that uh, looks at intelligent design and evolution um, and arguments for each position. One book I'm reading right now is Icons of Evolution uh, by Jonathan Wells, and that goes over all these different points that evolution uh, uses as evidence. Um, and then also Sean McDowell and William Dembski wrote a great book um, on intelligent design, and so you can check that one out as well. So um, I hope that helps a little bit. Andrew, thank you for the question. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. Well, I'm going to close this off. And again, check out the Engage conference if you're here in Southern California uh, tomorrow. And then also Rethink uh, Student Apologetics Conference on Friday and Saturday of next week in Costa Mesa. Well, thank you for listening to the Coffee House Questions podcast. If you have any questions, if you want more information, go to Facebook, like the Coffee House Questions Facebook page. And send me a message. I would love to interact with you, share more resources with you. Also, go to the website, check out the Speaking Topics page. I'd love to come to your church, your youth group, and share with you. So thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. This is Ryan Polly with Coffee House Questions. Won't hesitate to follow your love